0: Season 3 of Tiny Expeditions is made possible through the support of our sponsor, EBSCO Information Services, the leading provider of online research content, search technologies, and workflow tools serving public libraries, schools, academic institutions, corporations, and medical institutions around the world. Proudly delivering information access for researchers at all levels. Online at ebsco.com. That's e b s c o.com.
1: Welcome to this episode of Tiny Expeditions. My name is Chris Powell. I'm gonna be your storytelling guide for this episode.
0: And I'm Dr. Sarah Sharman, here to help you understand the science.
1: Sarah, it's here. We knew this day was gonna come at some point, but it's season three, episode six, it's the grand finale, and we have covered so much this season.
0: We began our journey by discussing DNA's role in filling out our family trees. We talked about genomic data access and privacy issues, And we talked about diseases like cancer and neurodegenerative disease, which are pretty common and affect a lot of people.
1: Today, though, we want to talk about something that may not be on your radar screens. Rare disease. Now, if you've been diagnosed with a rare disease, it's definitely something on your radar screen. But by definition, a rare disease is something that statistically doesn't affect a whole lot of people. But the research happening with these diseases is equally important.
2: So my name is Greg Cooper. I am a faculty investigator here at Hudson Alpha. At its simplest level, when we say rare disease, we're talking about things that that are rare, that, that don't occur very often. And, and by that, we sort of mean, if you were to pick a bunch of people at random, that very few of them would have that particular rare condition. So And this is in contrast. So you take something like diabetes, for example. Diabetes is quite a common condition. A, a significant percentage of people, if you just pick out random people, many of them will have diabetes. But there are many conditions where if you picked a, a hundred people at random or a thousand or a million people at random, you might not see anyone with that particular condition. And so examples like this might be cystic fibrosis is is one that people might be familiar with that um, is a significant medical condition that for the folks that have it, it's a, it's a very significant uh, issue for them to deal with, but it's not common. So most people, the vast majority of people won't develop cystic fibrosis, but a small percentage will. The trick with rare diseases, though, is that while individually they are they are very rare, but when you add up all the different rare diseases, you add up the one in 10,000 this, one in 5,000 that, one in a million this, collectively, so as a group, rare diseases in fact become quite common. And so lots and lots of, of people and families are affected by rare diseases as a group, even though individually those conditions might be quite rare.
0: In true Tiny Expeditions fashion, We promise we will dive into the amazing research being done on rare diseases. This includes research to continually improve the technology affording patients a diagnosis, as well as programs that are bringing these diagnostic tools to more patients and their families.
1: Before we get to that, we wanted to take a moment and talk with someone who has been affected by rare disease. We came across the Edwards family and sat down with them to talk about their experience of having a son with trisomy 18. We do understand that not all rare diseases are the same. And while we will hear of their experiences with Edwards Syndrome, their experience is not the same as everyone with rare diseases. But we wanted to at least get a feel for what it's like with life with rare disease.
3: My name is Kareem Edwards, um, co-founder of the Ewe Foundation.
4: And I am Sarita Edwards, um, founding partner with my husband, Kareem. We are parent advocates to a five-year-old little boy named Elijah who was diagnosed in utero. With trisomy 18, um, so Elijah is five years old. He celebrated his fifth birthday in March of this year, um, a, a milestone that I don't know that we we knew positively that we would see. Um, so we are, we celebrate that um, wholeheartedly. Um, Elijah just started kindergarten um, this year. Um, super excited about that. He is. He is a little miracle. He is very vibrant and happy. He loves to clap and play, Um, but he does have uh, an extensive list of medical complexities. Um, We have about 18 specialists that we see. We commute two hours one way uh, for his health care. We do have doctors here locally as well, but but pretty much all of his specialty care is, is about two hours away. We were told um, around 22, 23 weeks pregnant um, that Elijah would pass away in utero during the delivery process or shortly after birth. That's what we were told. And if I am completely honest, that is what I expected. Um, We were sent home post-delivery in hospice care. We stayed. Um, we stayed in hospice care for about seven months. Um, no interventions or, or any type of therapeutic services for Elijah, um, and then we aged out of hospice. Um, they told us that because we were pursuing life's life sustaining measures, um, it was a conflict with our insurance at that time. We were we were in hospice care. Um, I guess around seven months is when we, actually started seeing specialists for the first time and and talking to you know folks other than hospice or our pediatrician um and and that's when we really started learning more about what trisomy 18 even means because i don't think we really had a clear definition before then because
3: yeah. it was uh what was it five years ago there was not a lot of information or detail about trisomy 18 it was it's a terminal illness baby's gonna die Period. Forget about it. That's That was it. Don't Google search it. Because what you'll see is probably not something that's um, welcoming or not something you want to see at this point. So just don't do that. Take our word for it. Um, yeah. May want to consider terminating now. What was it at, what, 22 weeks, 20, 23 weeks, something like that? Yeah. So that's where we were. Um, fearful, if I'm being honest. Yeah. But uh, because of faith, our faith, hopeful at the same time. Yeah. So it's similar to between a rock and a hard place. For I guess. sure. Yeah.
4: yeah. So trisomy 18 is when there is an extra 18th chromosome Um Elijah is full trisomy 18, which means he has that extra chromosome on all of his cells. You can also be mosaic or partial. Um, we have had two genetic set, two genetic tests to confirm that he is full, um, which is another anomaly, you know, as far as why he does so well um, with it. Um, but it is a chromosome abnormality. Um, we know that it is, is, is considered rare. Um, we do know that it's genetic. Um, we do know that um, it happens j- just in in the process of formation, right? Like it's it's not something that we could have prevented, um, and and that's really the broad scope of of what trisomy eighteen is. We do know that um, it causes several. Um, issues in the human body. Um, we were told prenatally that Elijah was missing three-fourths of his brain, that his esophagus was offline, um, that he, one of the valves in his heart was not connected. They later determined VSD. Um, we were told that um he had liver issues, kidney issues. Um, they later confirmed that he only has one working kidney right now. Um, the other one is cystic and non-functional. Um, clenched hands, rocker bottom feet. I mean, it's just a list of, of issues. And um, and 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 so far, everything that they that they told us uh, um, to some degree has been present but not to the extent that they explained it. I mean, statistically, 5 to 10% only live past their first birthday with severe challenges. And we are very, very blessed that Elijah, um, he doesn't have the trach, he doesn't have the the G-tube, he doesn't have a lot of the things that a lot of these other kids do. Um, You know, I would love to know, why?
3: Question for me is, um, we don't think that we're like special people. That Elijah, uh, Elijah's case is, while an anomaly, we myself, I wonder, are other kids the same? But because of the diagnosis, they're being taken down this road of you gotta have this, you gotta have that. Because we're the same thing. You need a trach, you gotta have a G tube. And our question was always why? Well, because he has Trust me eighteen. Well, I understand that, but why?
4: I think that's why that education piece is so important because you know, if if we're just if we're just creating solutions based off what we know, then that means maybe we need to learn something different. <laughs> um and, and if those opportunities are there, um, I think they should be Given to families I, because again, like Kareem said earlier, what about that that new mom and dad? They've never had a kid before. Um, they don't know those questions to ask, and and I don't know prior to Elijah if if I would have been as comfortable as I am now mm-hmm. pushing back to a physician. You know, it it wasn't until. I felt like my back was against the wall.
3: No, no, I, I can say I don't know, but I can say it was the, the moment we have this living baby here that's uh, needing fed or whatever, and mm-hmm. they, and they, and they tell us to give him morphine. Yeah. And, I think and she was like, morphine? Why would I do that? Well, for his pain. <laughs> and she immediately goes, How do I know he's in pain? And they were like, Well, I mean, he's crying. Okay, so why does that mean he's in pain? How do how do I know he's in pain? Oh, well, what would you do for one of the other kids? And she was like, well, I'd see if they need a changing or feed them. And they had this look on their face like, that makes sense, but <laughs> give him <them> the morphine. <laughs> yeah. For parents
1: in those moments, after having just given birth, there's a ton of decisions and emotions that are flooding over you all at the same time. And for the Edwards family, that was all compounded because of trisomy 18. And through this experience of having to deal with all of that at once, it really gave birth to this idea of the Ewe Foundation, a foundation in which the Edwards family could then help other families who were struggling with the exact same scenario.
4: You know we are, we are an organization um, committed to making sure families have access um, to healthcare services. Um, you know I think the whole goal is to try to bridge the gap between diagnosis, delivery, and that overall coordination of care. Um, we know that. We know that every outcome won't look the same for babies diagnosed with trisomy 18. Um, but, but we want to um, hopefully provide families with as much information as we can for as long as they are on the journey.
0: They're doing amazing work and have touched many families across the globe. The Foundation helps raise awareness about Trisomy 18 amongst the community, the research field, and various government offices. They develop and distribute educational materials to help families navigate hurdles and milestones. One of their programs provides financial support and end-of-life care for families. Above all else though, the Foundation brings together Trisomy 18 families, giving them a community to lean on during the good times and the bad.
4: The information and the education is so important. And I think sometimes, you know, as as a parent, I think sometimes we want that cure to try to just remove the diagnosis or the challenges that comes with the diagnosis. Or, you know, we want the medicine to try to fix something that we, we, we believe is broken. Um, I think for us, though, um, the information and the education is that like that's the piece that we believe families can do so much more with research doesn't always have to be about finding a cure for you know for us I think you know I think when we talk about research we're talking about understanding more what this is and how it impacts children and and figuring out is there something we can do to to make things easier from a scientific perspective, from, you know, even for the kid and the parent, right?
0: The Edwards family found out about Elijah's diagnosis in utero because it was a known disease with a known genetic cause. Many families are struggling to find a name to define their loved one's symptoms because the disease has not yet been discovered. It's time to jump back into the research and learn how Dr. Cooper and his lab are trying to not only give families an answer to their health problems, but also find the genetic cause of the diseases.
2: I am interested in doing basic uh, genetics research. We are particularly interested in uh, the genetic factors that uh, give rise to intellectual disabilities and other kinds of developmental disabilities in children. So a lot of the work that we do involves uh, identifying uh, children and their families who um, are dealing with some, uh, some sort of developmental condition and uh, basically looking at their DNA, trying to understand if there are genetic factors that are giving rise to that. And we do that both as part of uh, uh, working with physicians to actually provide diagnostic information back to families, but then we also do research to try to learn uh, about new conditions, about new ways that uh, we didn't previously understand about how our our, how human DNA shapes uh, our, our, our traits, our attributes. You can learn things by studying rare diseases you often learn because it's shared biology, right? We're affecting, we can affect the same genes or pathways or tissues. And so by studying a rare disease, you can often learn about a common disease. So there's a, a huge benefit to, to looking at rare disease that goes beyond the benefits to those individual families and patients, which is a, a very important motivating factor But the point is you can learn biology that translates across many different conditions, across uh, uh, other areas that maybe you didn't expect to learn about. That just by virtue of learning something basic about human biology, you learn something that translates to other diseases as well.
0: Dr. Cooper's rare disease research primarily focuses on neurodevelopmental disorders. That's an umbrella term that covers many different diseases. Common symptoms of neurodevelopmental disorders range from intellectual disability and delays in speech and communication to seizures and motor developmental delays, to name a few. This wide spectrum of symptoms makes neurodevelopmental disorders especially hard to diagnose.
2: The fundamental challenge with with diagnosing a rare disease is that it's rare, and so uh, uh, it's very often true that a physician might not see In their entire career, he or she might not see a single case of any given rare disease, and so when one comes along, odds are they haven't seen it before. The other challenge is that many of the symptoms between any two rare diseases can overlap a lot. So we talked about things like seizures. There are hundreds of different conditions that will manifest with epilepsies or seizures. And so just observing that a child is having epilepsy doesn't really tell you what the underlying cause is. That's a symptom that is spread across many different conditions and because of that and things like intellectual disabilities and these other things, these symptoms that we're talking about, for any given rare disease that it's not, there's no one symptom that says oh it's this it's this condition versus something else. It really is, there's a collection of symptoms that differentiate this disease from another and then there's actually also variability within a disease. So the our primary focus at, at Hudson Alpha uh, and, and other research institutions in general, we are very interested in, in human genetics. So we study DNA, and it's because we know that our DNA has a lot of influence on on our, our, our attributes. So that includes things like how tall we are or what the color of our hair is, but it also includes things like what your risk for lots of different diseases are. Diabetes is an example where your genetics have a role in in what your risk of diabetes is. For neurodevelopmental disorders, it turns out that they are heavily enriched for genetics having a huge impact.
1: Having worked at Hudson Alpha for many years, we've been able to hear a lot of stories from families who are impacted by the work of the Cooper Lab. Many of these family stories go on for months or even years of not knowing what's wrong. They know something's wrong, but they simply don't have the answers to be able to put a name with what's being presented in their child. And as we saw with the Edwards family, just having a name or a little bit of information can go a long way to helping these families.
2: A lot of families have been struggling with trying to understand why their child is having the symptoms that they have. And they might go see a neurologist. They might see um, a whole bunch of different specialists that focus on particular um, kinds of of symptoms. But ultimately, they can't get a resolution and say, this is what's happening and this is why it happened. And they bounce around. They might get lots and lots of imaging done and blood work and all kinds of things. And ultimately, because those tests weren't directed at the root cause, they really were never going to be able to actually pinpoint with precision what was actually uh, the, the, the precise diagnosis for that child. So a lot of the families that we have worked with in terms of our research projects had been dealing with this for years.
0: Advances in genetic sequencing technology are beginning to dramatically cut the time a patient waits for a diagnosis. One exciting tool, called long-read sequencing, allows scientists to gain a more complete picture of a person's DNA compared to the technology used during the Human Genome Project, for example.
2: The new advance and the thing that we're really excited about here at Hudson Alpha and and again elsewhere is a new technology that allows us to look at much bigger pieces. So instead of millions of teeny tiny pieces, we might look at tens of thousands of pieces that are a hundred, a thousand times bigger. When you have a puzzle piece that much bigger, it's much easier to to figure out how they fit together. And so we're starting to see changes in people's DNA that were previously missed because our technology just couldn't see them. Uh, And what we're finding is that in some of those areas of of that that genome puzzle, if you will, there's, there's variation that's relevant to disease. And we just couldn't see it before. And it was purely because the technology, there was a gap in the technology that couldn't reveal it to you. And so that's one of the areas that we are really excited about now is applying this new technology, which, again, like this history of genomics started off as a as a very niche, expensive, difficult, cumbersome process. And it's now being uh, over time at the efficiency and the, the uh, is increasing the cost is decreasing our ability to manipulate the data is getting better. And so we're right now on the verge of likely over the next few years, we're going to see a pretty significant transformation in how we sequence a person's DNA. And that's likely to, to give us a pretty, uh, pretty exciting boost in our ability to find uh, diagnostic genetic test results. Uh, and again, also on the basic research side, it's, it's very exciting as well. But really, it should be especially impactful in the kind of clinical diagnostic work that we do.
0: After sequencing, the long-read data is analyzed by the Cooper Lab with the hopes of identifying a disease-causing change in the child's DNA and giving them a diagnosis. But as we've mentioned many times this episode, rare diseases are rare, and it's possible that only one or two children in Alabama, or the Southeast, or even the entire United States have the disease. So in order to increase their knowledge of these rare diseases, Dr. Cooper's lab relies on another interesting tool, the internet.
2: We find a patient that has a change that we think looks interesting, but that we don't understand because we've not seen it before. We will put that into. There's a tool called Gene Matcher, uh, and it really it's it's basically a, a dating service, if you will, for geneticists. Where if somebody else anywhere else in the world also went to Gene Matcher and said, "Hey, I'm interested in gene X," and we said we're interested in gene X, then it, it the computer sends you a, a note says you two should talk, and so it sends you an email. And, and we can say, now we, can, we found a second patient. And then if more, as more and more labs do this, we get a third patient and a fourth patient and a fifth. And so this has become a really powerful way for us to share data all across the world with, with uh, lots of other labs that are doing similar research and allow us to find all those connections that would have been missed before. There's no way we would have known about a child sequenced in Germany or Saudi Arabia or wherever without this kind of, uh, of um, uh, data sharing tool uh, driven, by, uh, uh, driven by these internet connections.
1: Tools can only take you so far without patients to benefit from them. The Cooper Lab through multiple research projects, work with pediatric neurologists and NICU doctors to identify patients who can benefit from DNA sequencing.
2: One of the, the more recent projects we worked on is something called SouthSeq. And this is where we said, well, what's the earliest that you might be able to diagnose? Again, trying to head off this odyssey, trying to prevent all that needless testing. Uh, we said, well, a lot of these children actually have problems from from the, the minute they're born, you can tell that there's something developmentally um, unusual happening. So we've partnered with uh, neonatal intensive care units, or NICUs, all across the Southeast, so including UAB and University of Mississippi, uh, and Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge, and LSU Children's, and University of Louisville, where we said we're going to work with the neonatologists that are treating babies in the NICU that clearly have a developmental um, uh, problem. And we're going to sequence them when they're just a few days or a couple weeks old, rather than wait until they're three or four or five or 20 and have to have gone through all that years of, of, of kind of futile testing. So we've been trying to accelerate the process in terms of getting, identifying these children as early as possible to maximize the benefit to these families, both by avoiding tests that aren't going to work and also giving them an answer that they can then take to all of their pediatricians in the future. Or any physician that that child sees, they'll have that diagnosis in their hand and they'll know about it. And that might help to make their future clinical interventions much more effective and, uh, and give the physicians a little bit of extra knowledge to help them make better decisions about, about treatment. And it's not just treatment, it's things like education, schooling, counseling, speech therapy, all kinds of things where that diagnosis might actually make the uh, ability to provide the best possible care and communication for that child m- much more effective than it would be if you didn't have an understanding as to why they or what the source of their, their developmental symptoms were. fact that we can do that and at least have a, a small positive impact on some families is, is really a wonderful feeling. And that's also the kind of reason that we talk a lot about our successes in diagnosing kids. And, and we do very often find diagnostic uh, useful information for families. But we often, there are many, many families that we don't find anything for. And that's what motivates us is we want to give them something useful, right? We want to learn something uh, new that then translates into uh, a diagnostic result for them because we know that it can be such an impactful, important piece of information. And so that's really what sort of gets us out of bed in the morning is all the the families that we haven't been able to help yet. We're confident that eventually we'll be able to help them. We just got to do the work to get there. And so that's really what keeps us kind of going is is all those families that we think we can help. And we just got to do the work to, to get there.
0: We would like to thank the Edwards family for sharing their story with us. If you wanna learn more about the EWE Foundation, including ways to help out, visit their website at theewefoundation.org.
1: Thank you for joining us for this season of Tiny Expeditions. We hope you enjoyed learning a little bit about the role that DNA has in human health and disease.
0: We're going to take a short break as we prepare for season four. But follow us on Twitter at Expeditions Tiny to continue the conversation about genetics, DNA, and inheritance during the break.
1: Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama.
0: We've got a campus full of scientists doing public research alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate.
1: If you find this podcast interesting, please rate, review, like, and subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. And tell someone that you listened to this interesting little story about genetics. Knowledge is better when you share it.
0: Thanks again to our sponsor, EBSCO Information Services. And thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us.